advisory to those who are not animal lovers, open to new ideas, or interested in integrative holistic healthcare for your pets, and believe that prescription diet is the best food for your pet. This podcast may offend your sensibilities. Have you ever felt frustrated and helpless after listening and doing everything your vet told you to do but it only made your sick pet worse and not get any better? That's me in 2008 with my first adopted cat, Meow. I did everything the vet told me to do and I realised she wasn't getting any better and only worse. So I decided to look into alternative health options and was drawn to the stories of holistic pet service entrepreneurs and their transformative journey, overcoming obstacles, chasing their passion and creating a movement that has caused a ripple effect of positive change in the lives of their clients and pets around the world. Join me as I share the raw, inspiring journeys of these amazing entrepreneurs, their successes and failures. My name is Amrys Wang, and this is The Raw Entrepreneur. Good morning, everyone. This is Amrys Wang of The Raw Entrepreneur. Today's episode is with Heather Gibson, an emotional support animal breeder. The word breeder is a dirty word for many in the animal rescue world. Coming from the animal rescue community in Singapore, Backyard breeders are a huge problem. This topic is so sensitive that it causes more division than forging understanding amongst animal lovers. I hope this podcast will provide an alternative view from an ethical breeder and help bridge the gap and create more respectful conversations, understanding and promote best practices in our community of animal lovers. This is her story. Who is Heather Gibson, please? I am an emotional support animal breeder. I breed both cats and dogs. I am the mom of seven children, a former foster parent and now adoptive parent. Uh, I fostered for about 10 years and I'm very passionate about pets and about emotional health. I have a certificate as a pet nutrition coach, as well as animal aromatherapy specialist, and just love all things animals and helping animals as much as I can. So I wow. got, yeah, I got started in breeding. I, I get asked this a lot. Um, when I was in the middle of being a foster parent, we had two dogs and my kids were always fighting over the dogs. It was just a constant battle. And I realized that they were looking for that extra touch and that extra security of having an animal with them that loved them. And at the time we couldn't have any more dogs. And so we looked into cats and we were looking for a very specific purpose. We needed a cat that was very social and outgoing. And so we did look for a purebred cat and, uh, found some kittens. They were all spayed or neutered when they came to us and fell in love with them. They just really made a huge difference in my kids' lives. And it was then that I was offered an opportunity to breed a litter. And we had had to go out of state quite far to find the kind of animals we were looking for. 
And because my husband is a marriage and family therapist and works primarily with the same kids that we were fostering and adopting, uh, we knew a lot of other families were looking for something similar. So we did our first litter and fell in love with the opportunity to raise kittens, to socialize them and to place them in the right homes. And so that kind of just grew. That was over seven years ago now. And I have just loved being involved in animals' lives. Um, we, we did start breeding dogs just recently. Well, we've had our two dogs for over two years because you don't breed them until they're two years old. Um, but it was my daughter, one of my daughters. I do everything for my kids. I think that's how I get into all these different adventures in life. And um, my daughter was having a hard time at college and I had just placed a cat with a college age um, student who really I knew could take good care of uh, this kitten. And I thought, why, why didn't I place one with my daughter? She was having a lot of the same things, you know, feeling detached, um, having some low level anxiety and uh, a little bit of depression being away from home. And I asked her about it and she said, mom, I'm not a cat person. I'm a dog person. So, <laughs> yep. Now we do um, a small amount of Havanese dogs. And I know there's a big issue between adopt and, um, you know, the adopt versus shopping um, yep. that a lot of people say. And I do want to share a few things about that. Um, I don't know that everybody realizes how much breeders do with shelters, some breeders, obviously it's not every breeder, but here in my local area, when I go to a cat show and I do show cats and I know that doesn't sound like a thing, but, um, when we have cat shows where they judge on if the cat you have meets the breed standard, we always have a shelter there and they always get free space. And we're always promoting to adopt out the kittens that are in the shelter. So I was at a show um, in Texas about a month ago, and the shelter completely sold out all their kittens, well, placed all their kittens, I should say. There was a small adoption fee, uh, as well as the shelter that was next to me that was more of a it was more of a situation where individual people would foster them. Um, they were able to place a lot of their kittens as well. And I am personally involved with rescues for my breed. And I think all ethical breeders will take back their pet no matter what. So if someone calls me any, any pet that I have ever bred and they, for any reason, they need to return them, I take them back. Um, we're very careful about making sure that we breed for personality and health first and then for, you know, whatever appearance people might be looking for after. And I think that's where sometimes the problem comes up is people don't realize what an ethical breeder looks like and how they're involved in the foster shelter um, rescue world. Uh, so the way that most rescues got started originally were by breeders. So breeders would do rescues for the breed that they were raising and would bring a lot in. Um, so if, you, if you've if you never met a breeder like me, 
um, just look around a little bit more. I think there's a lot of us. I know we even help. We have a local clinic that raises, you know, takes care of shelter cats. And when they come in, sometimes they need blood transfusions or things like that. And they actually reach out to our cat community, our, our breeder network, and we'll bring in our healthy cats to give blood transfusions if they match and things like that. So there's actually a lot of ways that breeders and rescue shelters or foster communities are working together. And I'd really love to promote that more. So which breed of cat do are you breeding? What's, what's the breed that you were looking for for your children? So I did a lot of research and I was, like I said, looking for a very outgoing cat. I wanted a cat that was almost dog-like. And so I settled on the Tonkinese breed. It's not right. a really well-known breed. Um, mm. They're known as in their, you know, past history, a mix between Siamese and Burmese. Um, they're not overly chatty, but they are super outgoing and playful. And right. they have been a perfect match. Um, I do do occasionally a couple litters of Balinese because what I was finding when I was working with families is that some families had some mild allergies and that was stopping them from getting a pet. And Balinese have less of a protein. It's called the feline D1 protein, which is what most people are allergic to. So if they have mild allergies, then a Balinese cat a lot of times can be a great, a great match. So could you walk me through the process of um, how you ethically breed a cat? Just to educate sure. me. Yeah, you know, it's been a process for me too. And I've done a lot of learning over the years. I really love to learn. So I'm always educating myself. But the way I do it is number one, I find parents that are very healthy. I test genetically to make sure that there's no issues, you know, that we can see that would create a, you know, an, an offspring that would have some genetic issues. And of course, that doesn't cover everything. Um, you can never predict mother nature all the way. But we do our genetic testing to avoid as much as we can. And um, we find very outgoing, great personality cats. I breed a breed that has uh, a very good health status as far as, you know, among cats, they're very healthy as well as the dogs I breed. So I breed Havanese dogs and both come, you know, as ones that have very low health issues. Uh, so I'll find parents that are like that. I'll breed a litter. Of course, we do all the testing that we can um, as far as making sure that we're cleaning really well. So we have none of our lovely parasites that can come in, even on the bottom of our feet, we track those in. So Giardia is one that you can get, if you have secondary water, you can track it into your home. So it is a lot of work and a lot of cleaning. Um, and then after we find those right parents and we work on uh, getting a right match there, we are able to do our very best to raise them. Uh, so of course we raise them in the home and we're very involved in their lives. We do, maybe some of your li listeners are familiar with puppy culture, which just means you're exposing uh, the animals, the young animals to different sounds, sights, touches, 
all, all the different senses so that when they grow up, it's shown to, that they are more resilient to illnesses as well as more confident cats and, and dogs. And so even though it's called puppy culture, we do it with our cats as well. And they get a lot of time and attention. And then when it's time to place a cat, we work very hard at finding the right family, you know, the right fit. So if they come to me and they say, you know, we want an emotional support animal, this is the age of the child or the adult that we're looking to really benefit the most, then I can really help them make a good match. Uh, breeding ethically costs a lot of money, a lot of money. So I hear a lot of complaints about the prices for buying a pet. And my first five years of breeding, I lost money every year. Um, I didn't make any money. I'm getting to the point now where I'm doing better and I'm not losing money every year, but it's not a job to write home about. It definitely is a passion project. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with breeders making money. And here's why I think a breeder that makes money, you're going to get a higher quality breeder if they're doing it right. Now, if they're not doing testing and they're doing it all for the money, then no, I don't agree with that. But if a breeder is able to make some money, they can take better care of their pets and do more to produce better pets. So I think it's important for people that are upset about how much it costs to breed or to buy a, an animal that's been bred to know that it costs a lot for us on the back end to raise animals and do all the testing we do and have all the equipment that we have to help keep all the animals healthy. So. Yeah. Cause, cause I come from the rescue community. Right. So, you know, we deal with a lot of backyard breeders and abandoned cats and, you know, um, very, very unethically done. And most of the time the, the cats are very unhealthy. They have some sort of deformity or disease you know, and these backyard breeders, their homes are not clean to begin with. They've never done any, you know, medical checkup or testing, as you mentioned, you know. Um, so in Singapore, you know, um, people view breeders with a lot of suspicion, you know. Um, how old would you start breeding a cat? I'm just curious. Yeah, so a cat, you wait until they're at least a year old. And then with most dogs, it's two years. So that's kind of the difference between, as you call it, a backyard breeder and an ethical breeder is that they'll, they'll take into consideration the health and the welfare of the pet more than how much money they can make, you know, starting er too early or um, doing all the testing. I do spay or neuter all my cats before they go home. Um, I keep them for 16 weeks which is a long time. A lot of people will send home cats at like eight or nine weeks that if, if you have a breeder that wants to send home your cats at eight or nine weeks run, that is not a good breeder because they need to be with their parents for at least 12 weeks for cats because it takes that long for them to learn what the mom has to teach them. It avoids a lot of litter box issues as well as wool sucking. Um, so some pets will eat fabric and kind of knead at it and put holes in it 
And some of that behavior is because they were taken too young and they weren't able to nurse long enough. So they need to kind of cognitively develop to be ready to go. And because I'm able to keep them until they're 16 weeks old, we're able to do the spay or neuter uh, right around 14 weeks and then they go to their new homes. Um, puppies, I like to keep mine till at least 10 weeks. I know breeders are all a little different. Unfortunately for puppies, you know, they need to be spayed or neutered later so that they can grow properly. But I do include in my contract that they do, you know, they're agreeing to get them spayed or neutered because I don't want to continue that problem with backyard breeders that don't know what they're doing, that don't want to invest the time and the effort into doing it right. And I, I can absolutely see why people are mad at breeders. I'm mad at a lot of breeders and for, you know, how they choose to treat pets. I don't think it's fair for the animals. Um, I think though, it's kind of hard to lump everyone together, just like in anything in life. Uh, there are some rescues, shelters or foster homes that are not good either and that are doing it for the wrong purpose. So I think it's important to look at the person and their, what they're trying to accomplish and how they're working at it more important than having the label. So I've, I've had a lot of mistrust and um, a lot of anger towards me. And like I said, I understand it, but it, it can be hard sometimes. Uh, for example, I was setting up to be a vendor at an event. I'm also a I, I fell in love with a pet product line. And so I became a rep for them and I was going to a big cat event and had got my vendor application accepted and was ready to put down the money. And one of my emails that went through to the organizers had my tagline in it. And I must've been sending everything else through my phone because then my tagline doesn't come through. But it says my tagline at the time was something like uh, passionate about hand raising um, lifelong pets. And the organizer saw it and I was very abruptly disinvited from being a vendor, even though I wasn't, none of my booths had to do with talking about breeding and actually told I wasn't invited to the event. So not only was I disinvited as a vendor, I was pretty much banned from the event. And it, it was a little shocking and, um, disheartening, but at the same time, I, I understand where the sentiment comes from. I think uh, human nature, human beings can be extremely nasty when they want to. Um, you know, um, even those with the best of intentions, when they are filled with righteous, I put it in, in inverted commas, righteous indignation, you know, um, how they behave can be quite... Uh, disrespectful yeah and very hurtful you know and sometimes I think it's unnecessary because you know I think we all learn you know um what you do might not be 100% correct same with me but if we learn to have conversations with each other calmly and respectfully even if we disagree you know we sort of respectfully disagree agree to disagree you know um we we will grow that way you know, bringing people together is much better than keeping them apart. And then you just feel a lot of distrust. And this is something that, you know, 
um, I know like my rescue friends might be very unhappy for me doing this interview as well. <laughs> no, honestly, honestly, you know, because it's an extremely touchy subject, yes. you know, and because they know that I'm, I'm a cat person, you know, uh, in, in, in where I am from. So they'll be like, how could you go over to the dark side? You know, how can you talk to, to, to the enemy? And the thing is, I want to know why you do what you do. You know, and I like the fact that you mentioned very clearly that it's emotional support that you're breeding for, you know, to help children, to help, you know, people who need emotional support. I don't think a lot of people uh, realize that coming from mixed breeds, because I do mixed breeds, obviously, you know, dogs and cats, um, it's not always 100% going to be smooth sailing. Um, and you were mentioning about kittens being taken away very young at eight weeks and they suck on wool and they eat, you know, and make holes. I have cases like that. Yeah. I have cases. I mean, like they're now adults, but I have one cat that's almost like, I would call it pika. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's another term for it. Yeah. He's literally eating, you know, towels, you know, cotton towels. And, you know, I had a scare where I had to bring him to the vet. You know, luckily we didn't have to do surgery, but we had to pump him with a lot of fluids and monitor him and laxatives just to let him like shit it out naturally. Right. You know, <laughs> but oh my goodness, when you see the, the, how big the material he's consumed, it scares the shit out of you. I mean, like seriously, you know, so when you mentioned that you want to keep the kitten 16 week, weeks, you know, instead of eight, I respect that. Because even as a fosterer myself, you know, if I foster like newborn kittens, neonatal ones, I will keep them, you know, easily, yeah, almost that long, just so that I can monitor them, make sure that they're well, you know, and, and well adjusted before I even do a home trial. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that, that whole immune system is so tentative for for cats and yeah pika is a real thing and pika isn't always because they were taken away early but yeah it is one of the one of the ways that it happens so and i i appreciate you coming on and letting me share the dark side of, <laughs> you know the the view from the dark side um I think if breeders have a purpose, I think that's one of the really key things, because when I look at it, when I decided what to do with my kids and I was trying to find, because I was, I didn't have purebred dogs before, but I was looking for a very specific outcome that I needed from the pets I was bringing in. And, um, when you get a shelter pet and I, I've met so many amazing shelter pets, so I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. But sometimes it's a little bit of hit or miss. Um, even if you go meet them at the shelter, you're not exactly sure uh, more about what's, what's going to come out as you bring them home. And we've had shelter dogs before, and I loved them. Um, but there definitely has been some things that have come out that I didn't expect when I met them at the shelter. And we even did you know, a home trial for a little bit. Sometimes it takes them a good week to start to feel comfortable and then their normal personality comes out. 
And that's why I think when you foster a pet and you talk to the foster parent, you're going to get a much better idea of what that pet is like normally than if you go to a shelter and, and meet them one time. You know, I think that's one of the things that happens sometimes. But if at the time when I was looking for a very specific purpose, that is why I went purebred because I was looking for a very distinct personality that I needed to meet a need with my kids. Um, some of my kids have very severe PTSD. Uh, we've got some autism spectrum, definitely some anxiety disorders, and even some um, oppositional defiant disorders. We have some pretty tough kids um, that we've brought into our lives. And so I needed to be really sure what we were doing there. And so that's when I think breeders come in and make a good fit for a family sometimes. And I don't know how it is over there, but here in the U.S. with COVID, most of the shelters are completely empty. Like there has been a, no, not there. There's been. No, Singapore is full, full, full. We, we have, we, it's the complete opposite of what you're going through. I wish it was, you know, the, the, the COVID phenomenon of empty shelters, but unfortunately, um, I think we have a higher rate of abandonment oh. over here, you know, plus we have a lot of irresponsible pet ownership where they don't um, sterilize at home, especially cats. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, cats, they breed literally like rabbits if you're not careful. They sure do. You know? And, you know, it's so easy to start with two and end up with 90 without realizing it. And I deal with hoarders, mm -hmm. you know, hoarder cases. So, like I said, the, 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 the whole idea of, of, of breeders, you know, that connotation of breeding, it, it, it brings up, a, you know, like fear in a lot of people, a lot of anger. And, and a lot of the, um, sometimes we have mass abandonment, like, and you know, it's a whole bunch of suddenly like Siamese cats or lookalike Siamese cats or, you know, like blue Russians or something or, you know, and, you, and because of that, you sort of look at them and say, okay, it's a backyard breeder. And you sort of think, why didn't they, you know, take, be more proactive and more responsible in their breeding, you know? Um, I, I want to ask you, because you said you usually breed a cat at, at least one year of age, how often do you breed the cat, the same cat? Yeah, so that's another very hot topic with breeders. Mm. There's a lot of controversy about breeding whether you skip cycles or how often you breed them. And some law, some countries and even some states have legislated how you can do that. Um, I work with a, a vet that has been a breeder before, and he recommends doing it almost back-to-back -back breeding because of the infections and the issues that they can get from not breeding back-to-back. Um, that doesn't mean that I always do it. A lot of times it depends on when they start their heat cycle again. So I always wait, wait until the kittens have left. So that's at least 16 weeks after, you know, four months after um, the mom has delivered. And then I usually breed my girls about four, maybe five times. And then I spay them and, and find a good home for them. So I think that's another thing that an ethical breeder will do is not using a girl for too long because that's not good for her health. So. Okay. That's interesting. I mean, like 
I don't know anything about breeding, obviously. So I'm just asking and learning. Um, this is something that I guess I would need to research more if there's like any scientific basis on back-to-back breeding, as you say, uh, to avoid like, I don't know, like pyometra maybe. Uh, pyometria. You know, like, mm-hmm. Yeah, pyometria, mm-hmm. um, uterine infections and stuff like that. Um, because, you know, as a rescuer, there's this saying like, oh, because they were bred too much, hence they had this infection, you know. Um, so that 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 is an interesting thing that you brought up. Something that I honestly don't know about and I have to do my homework to figure that one out, you know. But um, I appreciate you sharing that with me. Yeah. So I can, I can really think about that. It's kind of backwards from what most people think. And I work really closely with my vet. Um, I've got a couple vets that I work with because obviously... Um, in the clinic I go to, I can't always get the vet when I need him. So you have to form relationships with several in the clinic, but we, we work very closely with the vets and we talk to them a lot. And if the vet says, you know, it's not good for this animal to breed again, then we, we listen and we spay or neuter them. Um, and even my boys, I usually only breed them till they're four because I like to have them go be in a new home and be, you know, not that our home is bad, but we do have several pets. And um, I think it's good. We can't keep all the, the ones we breed, obviously, or else we'd be a hoarder house. <laughs> I'd be the extra crazy cat lady. Um, <laughs> so we, we do rehome our girls and our boys. There are a few we've kept. Um, the ones that my kids form really strong bonds with, we've got a girl that's a breeder right now that when she's done, she's my daughter's. And so we'll, we'll keep her, but all the rest for sanitation and for health and for the betterment of the pet, we spay or neuter them and rehome them. And so there's a quality of life for them as well that we are definitely aware of. And not that they're not our pets here and they don't, you know, they roam around with with everybody, but um, it's just a little bit different when they get to go be the love of someone's life. So, so another question I have is about vaccination because I come from a from a community where we believe in minimal vaccination, not over vaccination, especially for cats. Because um, where I live, we actually advocate for keeping cats strictly indoors we don't let them roam because we live in a very urban environment and even if you let them out you should put them you know like on a harness with a leash or in a catio uh, a very safe enclosure um so i'm just curious um what is your you know do you have what is your vaccination protocol or yeah, you know. you're bringing up all the hot topics today, aren't you? <laughs> I know, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I actually love talking about them. So it doesn't bother me at all. Uh, I am someone that believes in doing minimal vaccinations as well. Um, I do strongly advocate for all pets being in, indoors, uh, for all cats being indoors. When I was growing up, our house my mom allowed our cats to be indoor outdoor cats. So they kind of came in and they came out and um, that's how she'd grown up on a farm. So that's what she did. Um, Our cat contracted feline leukemia and it was the first time the vet had ever seen it. It was like, Oh my goodness. You know, this is the first case I've ever seen. 
And when I'm in contact with my vets now, every now and again, I'll ask, hey, how many feline leukemia cases are you having? And the last time I asked it was uh, three to four a week. And so it is much, much more dangerous for our cats to be out, not to mention the cars and you know all those other hazards, but also interacting with other pets that are not vaccinated and not being taken care of is high risk. So um, I do fully advocate for cats being indoor only. Um, as far as vaccinations, I do believe in doing the first three for the kitten set. Um, I don't do rabies if I can help it. I may get in trouble for saying this. <laughs> no, that's fine. I support that. Yeah. <laughs> no rabies. <laughs> um, and if someone feels very strongly they need to do rabies, I don't recommend it until they're a year old. Um, right now, the feline leukemia vaccination is not one I recommend. Um, it's very, very tough on their immune system. And if you're an indoor cat, there really isn't a need for it. Um, as well as the uh, FIV vaccination they have out right now, there's just, it's not showing that it's very effective. So FIV is a huge deal among the cat community. Um, I don't know how it is out in Singapore, but I know any good breeder here is always listening on the latest research and where they're at and, and what we can do to help with it because it's such an unknown and um, it just happens. So for your listeners that aren't aware, FIV is a infection that basically morphs from a cat version of a cold. It morphs from the coronavirus and it's fatal at this point. They don't have cures for it. Um, there are some of us that are able to get some medicine on the black market. I call it the black market in air quotes here because um, it's not offered in the US. Um, so it really is the black market and there's been amazing results with that. And so all of us cat lovers are just praying that there'll be the day when that comes out and is available to the general population. Because right now it is a black market item that you have to pay a lot of money for to have shipped to the US. Wow. I don't know if I'm allowed to ask this question. What is it? Where is it from? <laughs> Honestly, I'm not sure. Yeah. Honestly, I'm not sure um, where it comes from. I haven't had a pet that's had to do that. I've had some very close friends that have. Um, right. but I haven't asked too many questions and I think most people that are doing it don't share too many answers. So, well, especially for an interview, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So minimal vaccination and the next question I actually want to ask, cause I'm curious because this is another, as you might call it a hot topic is nutrition what do you feed your cat now i'm full disclosure i am a i advocate more for fresh raw food diet but i understand when people can't afford it i try to advocate at least a wet canned food or gently cooked diet you know i try i tell them if you can avoid kibble avoid but if you can't we try and freshen up the bowl that's my disclaimer now i'm just going to put it out there okay i'm going to put it out there um and I know not everyone does that. So I'm just curious, where, what do you do as a breeder? What do you feed your cats? 
Yeah, a lot of breeders actually feed raw. You'd be happy to know. Um, so we, we have a lot of raw feeders in the community. And I do believe if you can feed raw right, that it is the best that you can do. But it can be really tricky. And I think a lot of my clients either are turned off by it or um, are scared to do it. And a lot of that is, you know, some vets are not well educated or don't feel like they can speak to it. And um, I love my vet. I love, love, love my vet. But he, I have had vets admit that um, they get very little nutrition training in vet school. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I became a certified pet nutrition coach and have been very passionate about that. And cats need a lot more moisture. So you're right. The canned food is absolutely the best way to go um, as much as you can. I do use kibble. I use a high-end holistic kibble that has protein as the first ingredient. I think that's really important. I don't believe in byproducts. I don't believe in having corn, wheat, or soy actually in um, pet food. And there's a lot of controversy on that too. Uh, for people that look at corn and they're like, well, it's a good protein source. The problem is in pet food, they use feed grade corn. And so a lot of the major recalls that are being seen are actually uh, related to the corn that's been tainted and it has something called anaphloxins in it that is fatal to pets. So there's a currently a huge recall going on, I think over 150 dogs dead um, and way more sick. And it was related to the anaphloxins from the corn. So I, I, I just won't do it. I won't feed corn. I don't think wheat is good for pets or soy. Um, so uh, I do a lot of wet. I do freshen up the bowl, like you suggest. I love treats that are freeze dried or uh, dry roasted. And I have some things that I will put on top of the bowl to, to give them that. And sometimes I do feed raw. If I feel like a pet really needs that extra help and support for whatever reason, we do some raw as well. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. Yep. I'm like, I'm, I'm actually really enjoying this interview. I, I have to say, I, I, I really enjoy talking to you. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm enjoying talking to you as well. You know, I have to be honest, before you came on, I was, I was a bit nervous because I was like, ooh, I just, I just made a date, a blind date with someone on Clubhouse whom I have never met or know. <laughs> on, you, know I, you know, I don't even follow her on social media. Oh, no. <laughs> so, like I said, pleasant, very happy. The universe heard me and I'm just very, very grateful you know to have this conversation with you you could have always erased this interview and never <laughs> used it for your blog <laughs> that's true but you know I I am there's a reason why I'm called the raw entrepreneur besides the fact you know the raw food right. obviously but the fact that I like things to be as authentic as possible the good the bad and the ugly yeah and and I sort of made a promise to myself that even if it's a crappy interview and I've done so many of them, trust me, because I'm a newbie. This podcast is barely a year old. I launched it last year on the 7th of May. Congratulations. 20, That's awesome. 2020. Most so, people you don't know, make it a year. So congratulations. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, so I, you know, I told myself, I made a promise to myself that even if it's a horrible interview, I must publish it at least for to, to show people like, 
you know, I did the interview and well, there it is. <laughs> Be kind. <laughs> Be forgiving. <laughs> we learn. <laughs> That's how we learn a lot of the time. You're absolutely right. Okay, so I'm I'm curious. So you feed uh uh mainly wet some some dry you try to freshen up um and you've been doing this for seven years Mm -hmm. right so what would you say in the seven years of breeding was like the can you name the i don't know the biggest mistake or shall we say the top three mistakes you've learned as a breeder to share with people oh my goodness I have learned so much. (laughs) There probably is more. So I'm trying to think of the best ones. One thing that I never realized as I got into it was how hard it is to lose kittens. So, you know, when the kittens are born and you're doing everything you can to keep them healthy. And every year I've learned more from my vets and more from other breeders about how to save more of my kittens. So luckily, um, you know, we, we've come a long way. Not that I lost a lot in the beginning, but a long way, but every now and again, you have a tragedy and I will be up every two hours at night feeding a kitten and then lose it, you know, after I've been doing that for a good week or so. And it's so heartbreaking. So one thing that I've learned as a breeder that I would share with other people that work in the same atmosphere, uh, whether it's a vet or shelter, foster, Um, whatever it is, is that you need a community of people you can talk to that understand you. Um, So when I lose uh, an animal, I've got a really good friend that's also a breeder, and she's the first person I call or I message. And um, somehow just talking to someone about it really helps uh, with that pain and the grief that you experience around it. So that's one thing I've learned that I would definitely do. I've learned a lot of like logistical things. So as far as like how to do the best setup for birthing and then socialization, and we've tried a lot of things and um, done a lot of different products to help with, you know, the training we talked about with the puppy culture. And so I've definitely honed in on what I love most on that. And then probably the other biggest thing that's taken a long time to kind of dial in was getting the right vet. Uh, One that would listen to me because I'm not completely incompetent with what's going on with my pets. You know, I've been doing this long enough and I've been training with vets about my breed that if a, you know, if a, if a vet comes to me and says, you know, this cat is way too small for its age. And I'm like, well, that's actually very standard for the breed. And they won't accept that or listen to me with some of that, then um, it can be very hard to get the care I need because they're not listening to what the actual issues I am seeing. So that was another process was uh, finding the right vet. Other big mistakes is working with the wrong breeders. Um, There were a lot of cats that I bought that I never ended up breeding because I didn't like the temperament of the cats. Um, And so that's where I lost a lot of my money the last, the first few years. And so I learned to fly out and visit the breeder and see their home before I ever put a deposit down and get to know them. 
because uh, if I didn't go meet the pet, even if they came highly recommended by other people or um, I'd kind of known them on social media, their pets were not sometimes what I was looking for. And almost some of them were almost feral, I would say. And because of that, I've learned to really get involved and be more hands-on with any animals I bring into my breeding program. Wow. I appreciate you sharing that because, you know, what you say actually applies to even like potential adopters, you know, uh, potential fosterers when rescuers are looking for potential fosterers as well. You know, it's a hit and miss, um, honestly, because sometimes you work with the wrong person, you get the wrong outcome. Um, For sure. So, yeah. So, you know, what you say is actually quite universal. You know, it's like building relationships. Um, getting to know the person that you're going to work with if you want to have a successful outcome you have to know the person as well um, seven years is quite a long time you said you you know spent a lot of money lost a lot of money did you ever think about quitting all the time <laughs> let's be honest um, you know there's days that are really hard as a breeder um breeding is not for wimps doing it right is not for wimps and you know i i deal with people that hate what i do i deal with clients that um are very difficult sometimes you know i I, i've gotten way better at the screening process but you deal with all kinds of crazy in any kind of a job but it's really difficult when it's you know your fur baby that you've raised and you know then you find out that the place you sent them to is a little bit crazy. Um, and so I've modified contracts and done different things so that I can pull them out if I feel like they're in danger. Uh, but it, it's hard. It's, it's hard. And like I said, where I didn't make any money for so long, <laughs> some days you wake up and you're like, why am I doing this? So particularly whenever I've lost um, an animal to death, uh, that's probably the biggest time I do it. And I'm like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. And, uh, so definitely, I mean, I, I think it's kind of like parenting in a, in a sense, you sometimes you kind of wish you could walk away for at least a day or two and not be a mom. <laughs> so, you know, how would you describe your personality, your character? You know, um, you know, what are you like as a person? Because, you know, and being, you know, in this journey as a breeder, you know, like what personal internal challenges did you face that sort of, you know, did it hit you? Did it shock you? Did it, you know, make you angry? Or I think most important, did it help you grow? I think like all painfully. Our Yes, I think all our trials help us grow. So as far as my personality, I tend to be creative, outgoing, but I'm also an empath, I feel like. So I take on a lot of emotion. Um, and I definitely believe in a growth mindset, which just is saying that everything that comes our way, we can grow and become better people because of. So when something goes really wrong, after I get over the initial shock and pain, I do try and look back and say, okay, what can I learn from this? 
So, you know, the changing the contract, the way that I interview families now, the way that I raise, you know, my kittens and my pups from a young age and the, the care I give, how soon I go to the vet, all of that has changed because of painful experiences that I've been through. Can I say I really like you as a person? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I like you as well. No, I, 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 you know, listening to you, you know, I have a lot of respect for you. Like I said, coming from the rescue world, you know, breeders has always been, uh, you know, it's like a, what do you call it? Like a bogeyman. Yeah. You know, the scarecrow on the other side of the field, you don't, you don't cross that line. And I, I, and I really appreciate the fact that we're having this conversation because I'm actually learning more uh, like from your perspective, you know, to, to really, you know, think why, why do, why do we need, you know, purebred cats? For yeah. Instance? Yeah. You know why? And, and the fact that you keep honing is like, cause you do emotional support, you know, uh, you're breeding them for emotional support. Um, that's why you did it, you know, to help, to help children, to help people with, with trauma, um, and that's a very, uh, very admirable thing, you know, and as you put it, it it's not easy to make money. <laughs> no, it's not. Did your husband, did your husband ever tell you to quit? <laughs> oh yeah. And my mom for a long time was like, you need to stop doing this. You're not making any money. And, uh, you know, cause cats, cats are cats and sometimes things get ruined because they knock things over or whatever. And, um, I, I had to explain to people, you don't understand. I love doing this. I love being able to be around pets and, um, watching the process and then helping, you know, these families find these perfect fits for them, you know, and the perfect fit. I mean, that's a little bit loosely said because, I know that there's lots of ways that animals can fit into a family, um, but it, it definitely has been the thing that gets me up in the morning and that brings me the most joy. And I do hope that in the future that we can all come together and work for the betterment of the animals together, that we'll find ways to collaborate more and drop some of the stigmas and just really care about the pets and not have, you know, labels of who we are or what we do exactly, but that we, we bring everyone together for the, for the health and the wellness of the pets. And I'm actually trying to start a movement that we're working on called Big Hearted Breeders, where we just highlight the breeders out there that are good and that are working for all the animals, not just the animals that they breed. So that's my hope. Ah, uh, well, I wish you all the best for that movement, you know, because it's not an easy career path that you chose. Oh, it's no. uh, a lot of people, you know, like I said, when they hear the word breeder in the animal rescue world, they go like, mm, yep. evil, evil witch. <laughs> you may be interested to know there's actually a divide among breeders, too. So really purebred breeders versus say your doodle breeders, you know, there's a lot of animosity that can be felt there too. And I, I just, the personality type, I'm like, 
you know, kumbaya, let's all work together. You know, let's just love each other and help support each other and teach each other how to do it more ethically and better and make the world a better place for pets and their people. You know, um, okay, the other thing I wanted to ask you, because I'm curious, you know, when you place your your your, your cat to the potential um, home, um, what are what do you sort of look out for? Or, you know, um, what are the checks and what are the red flags? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so I do an interview process now. I've kind of honed it down. Um, I have some things that go out automatically that tell them, a little bit about me and my process. And if they're okay with that, then I get them on a Zoom call or a phone call. And I'm looking to see, do they have proper expectations of what having a new animal is gonna be like? Are they ready to make a long-term commitment? Um, you know, a lot of that is finding out experiences they've had in the past. And I'm not gonna say that just because you've never had a pet before that would discount you. But I can usually tell a person and what they're like better if they've had a pet before. And so I look for those kinds of things. I talk to them about their vet and, you know, if they found a vet in their area and what their plans are for that. A lot of it's just education, too. Um, here in the U.S., we have a variety of different vet options. And there are certain vets that seem to be more about getting people through than really caring for their animals through some of the larger chains. And I'm not saying everyone's like that, but I personally went to one and the vet was recommending all kinds of tests and treatment for a cat that the vet hadn't even seen yet. Only their assistant had come in and got some information for, from me and then left and came back with the sheet of you know, expenses they wanted me to pay for. And I'm like, I think I'll talk to the vet first before I'm going to authorize anything. I think that would be important. Um, so I do a lot of educating to kind of help them navigate that because it is confusing. And um, it's hard when people you trust aren't giving you good information. So part of it is just kind of filling out that way, seeing what their personality is like, um, seeing what their family dynamic is like. I'm always looking to see what their housing situation is, if it would allow for a pet. I think the dogs are a lot, you know, there's a lot more questions than the cats. Um, but that's kind of the process and I get a feel. And I will tell you, people are never madder than when I say, I don't think we're a good fit. Let me give you some other names, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's never a fun conversation to have um, mm. because the truth is I don't want to give them any other names because I think that it's probably not a good idea and I'll share why, um, but it doesn't go over well. Do you look at, um, for instance, like bordering on collectors becoming hoarder situation, like how many cats or animals do you think is enough in a certain home area you know be it a landed property with a house you know one story two story or you know like say an apartment because in Singapore most of us live in apartments or flats as we call it here in high-rise buildings right so you know um where I live I live uh, my flat is just under 800 square I think it's feet 
I, I, I keep mixing up my metric system uh, with, with the, yeah, so <laughs> I think it's 800 whatever, you know, um, in the US and, and I realized I can only take in maximum as a rescuer or foster or adopter, 12 cats. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> and that's because I catify my home. Mm-hmm. I right. do environmental enrichment mm-hmm. because when I first started as, as a, a cat owner, my very first cat almost 13 years ago, um, I didn't know anything, not a zip. My home wasn't even like cat proof, right? Right. Um, but my, my flatmate came back with this injured kitten during a, a thunderstorm and, you know, I'm like, oh crap. I thought it was just going to be an overnight stay and then it was injured. We had to bring to the vet. The vet said it would take some time, you know, la, 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 la. And then I became a foster failure, I guess. You would call it that. <laughs> <laughs> but, I love it. You know, you know um, so I realized as I started um, getting more involved in the rescue community and fostering and, you know, uh, it's like I needed to create vertical space yes. for my home. Mm-hmm. And enough scratchy, scratch trees and litter boxes. Litter box politics. Human beings and cats and litter boxes is a huge thing. Oh, you yes. know, even, even with my potential adopters, you know. Um, yeah, so how do you deal with your litter box education politics? Wow, that's a you know, podcast all on its <laughs> own. Um, but basically what they say is you should have one and a half litter boxes for every cats you have in your house. And it does depend on the space and how often you clean. But um, I do talk to them about it because that's the number one reason why cats will get, you know, re- get returned. There'll be a, a failed placement. And so we, we do talk about that. We talk about what kind of litter I use. I actually use pine pellets. I don't know if you've ever used pine pellets, but um, it's great, especially for the kittens because sometimes they want to eat things. um, And so that's really safe for them. Uh, And so we do that. We clean our litter boxes twice a day here. So we don't have quite one and a half per cat, but um, yeah, so it's a lot of training. Hey, keep them in a confined area for a while where you're going to have your litter box so that they can get used to where it is, have at least one litter box per floor so that, you know, when you've got a little kitten, sometimes if they can't get all the way back to the litter box, then you're going to have more problems. So there is a lot of education. And I've gotten the point where I've started to do a whole series. So if someone gives me a deposit and we go through the interview process and we're good, they get a series of education emails to help them get ready for the cat. And then after they picked their kitten, because I've, I've got a rather long waiting list. So it's usually not like, oh, you want a cat here? I've got, which one do you want? This one or this one? It's usually a six to nine month process. And um, so once they pick their cat, then I highlight some of the stuff that I did before, which I'm hoping they don't notice too much, but you know, time has gone by. So sometimes they need some refreshers or maybe they didn't read or watch it all. Um, and I just try and drip little bits of information to them so that they're more prepared to be a pet parent uh, because the more prepared they are, the better their experience is gonna be. And then after they go home, I've got a series that goes out that just kind of checks on them and sees how things are going. So can I just say 
I love you even more. <laughs> well, I love you. the fact that you give e- an email sequence of education pre pre-sale, you know, and post. Um, it's actually a very good idea, which I think I'm going to implement for, for, for what I do with my potential adopters. I do a similar thing, but not so long, but I do actually give them a list, mm-hmm. a PDF file of links, of educational links and resources on cat behavior, you know, catification, nutrition, um, you know, why minimal vaccination is the way to go, you know, things like that. You know, so I, I usually, you know, um, give them this thing and I'll, you know, and say, oh, by the way, you know, you might want to watch, uh, say, Pet Food, the documentary, you know, and, 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 you know, little things like that to, to see how prepared they, they are. And especially I say, have you heard of Jackson Galaxy? Yeah. <laughs> and if they haven't heard of Jackson Galaxy, to me, it's like, oh, no. <laughs> We need some. We have to. Yeah. Big education. <laughs> bottom level starting here. You are a novice. <laughs> yes. So, so normally I will start with, have you heard of Jackson Galaxy? And if they said yes, then I'm like, okay, I think we can, you know, like you say, yeah. educational level, are you a level one or level two? And if they right. haven't, then I will say like, okay, if you have access to Animal Planet, the channel, can you watch my cat from hell or YouTube or whatever? Go and Google him. He's got his website. You know, do watch his episodes um, because that would actually tell you the things that you shouldn't be doing. Right. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. I've kind of evolved, like I said, because I used to give them, you know, this nice big email with all this information in it. And then I found that I was getting calls afterwards about things I'd already, you know, explained in the email. And I get it. Any of us, we can read things before and then we forget. And then we're, we're in the middle of it. We need it again. Um, but I found that we did better with the little small things. And so that's why I went to that. I like that. So I'm going to, I'm going to think about how I can implement that just out of curiosity. How long, how, how, how many days is that? Like, is it one tip per email kind of thing that you yeah, do? Yeah. It's kind of like a, like a little training or a little video per, okay. per, and I usually do it once a week and then it just drips. And right now I've got a series of five that go out um, after they, you know, we've done the interview and it feels like a good match. And then a uh, three, after they picked their, their pet and then the go home one, I mean, it, it, it doesn't go every week, but it goes for a whole year so that they are getting, wow. you know, little touches and, um, communication. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Cause you said your waiting list can be easily nine months yeah. before they can get a kitten. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. It's very, that's a very good tip. Thank you. You're welcome. I love that. I have to think about because I do a lot of um, education as well. Mm-hmm. So I know I know the problem of overwhelm. Right. You know, too much information and then they sort of glaze, their eyes glaze over and they sort of think you're a crazy person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, they do. So, so they say like, if, if I say yes and yes and yes, then you won't bother me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why you throw in some no questions and just shake it up and see if they're actually listening, you know. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I love staying in touch with my pet parents. I still get photos from some of my pet parents from, you know, adoptions that I did 
six, seven years ago. And I love that. And so I've learned over time to kind of make that relationship possible by showing it's, it's what I love. So. I love that. And what's interesting is that because this is your seventh year, you've actually hit the lifespan of a, of a, of a pet cat, which is like, well, hopefully less than midway, shall we say, mm-hmm. you know, because, uh, you know, the, I don't know what's the average lifespan of an uh, indoor cat over there. But, you know, in Singapore, if they're well taken care of and loved, they can easily live 18 to 20 years or even longer. Right. You know, right. If, if you can preserve them really well, you know, with a lot of TLC. So your seven year in business, your cat will be considered like, well, a mature cat, not, not so much a senior cat, but a mature cat. So do you, do you, you know, like, um, share tips with them like you know like do they come back to you and and give you updates like oh my cat is doing this and and you know like in terms of because you're a a nutrition uh coach right right and i've learned a lot over the years so i try and be there to help and support them and yeah and even with all that we do sometimes you know the pets have issues down the line so i've been working with uh, an owner recently on gingivitis, uh, I guess their pet had gingivitis and there can be some genetic links to that. I haven't had any other kittens in the liver litter report that. That doesn't mean that the owners are doing anything wrong. It can still pop up. Um, and so it's not super common among um, the our breed, among the breed I do. So uh, it's something that I talk with them about and try and help them with. Right. I'm going to say it again. I'm really enjoying this conversation. Um, truly, truly, I, I, I'm, I'm, I love this conversation. It's, yeah, definitely, I love it. <laughs> um, I love being here too. <laughs> um, so, your seven years in business, you know, um looking back 2020 hindsight is always very easy, you know, but if there was one thing that you could change. Or in, improve, in 2020. Hmm, hindsight. Yeah. I have to admit 2020 was actually a huge blessing for me. And I feel kind of bad saying that sometimes because I feel like it was so horrible for so many people. I don't want to lessen the pain that a lot of people have been through but for me, it was an adjustment and a refocusing of my time. And I actually had a little bit of a health crisis at the beginning of 2020. I had been running too hard. I was showing my dog and um, was all over the country and had an adrenal crash. So I had some issues going on with my adopted kids and their you know, some of their mental health issues and just everything that was going on. I was so stressed out, but I was still running so fast that 2020 uh, was a year of healing and slowing down for me. So what I really need to learn from 2020 is to be kinder to myself and pace myself better and really 
realize that when I don't take care of myself, then nobody else or none of my pets really get the care they need either. Self-care. That is something that I've learned to appreciate as well in 2020. Um, you know, being an animal lover, a rescuer, you know, uh, you can get compassion fatigue very easily. Yes. Um, you can get very discouraged by, you know, bad outcomes, shall we put it that way? Yes. You know, um, so I've actually learned that I need to carve out time for myself yes. every day. You know, it's non-negotiable. You know, I realized that because when I don't make time for myself to meditate or exercise or journal, you know, whatever that makes you recharged and refreshed, um, the rest of my day goes kaput. <laughs> right. And I get a add-on effect when I don't do my self-care routine every day. It's like, oh gosh, you know, it's like if you don't go to the gym regularly, you sort of really sluggish, <laughs> that kind of thing. Right. So, yeah. yeah, there's definitely, it's, it feels a little counterintuitive because as givers and a lot of us that are working with animals are very much givers. Um, we feel like we're better off giving, 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 giving. But the problem is there, there is a point where you can't give anymore and then you're good to nobody. And so self-care is key so that we don't get fatigue and burnout from, from the hard, the hard situations we go through and all the giving we do. Um, did COVID last year affect your business? Or did you have to change or modify what you're doing pre-COVID and now? Right. Um, so for the, the company that I do some repping for, you know, the holistic solutions, I did a lot of events and obviously that completely stopped um, during COVID. So I turned more to online Honestly, for about three months, I just crashed. Like I could hardly get off the floor. It's funny how our bodies run, run, run. And then as soon as we give it an opening, it's like, oh good, I can relax. And I just kind of <laughs> fell apart. Um, so I, I did shift. I shift in how I was helping and supporting clients. Um, I did more education, which I loved because one thing COVID brought us was that we didn't have to go in person to some of those education courses that we had wanted to before, but you had to go in person. And so um, I got my animal aromatherapy cert certification and um, really with the breeder stuff, it wasn't really much different. Um, I mean, I, I do a lot of work with people that are out of state. And so it ends up being that we do Zoom calls anyway most of the time. And so they were meeting the kittens online or, you know, the puppies online. And so that really didn't change much in COVID. I, I just think that we had more time to play with them. So if anything, they were probably more socialized than they've ever been. <laughs> uh, um, see, I was going to ask you this question and it sort of like poofed off the tip of my tongue. I lost it. I was going to ask you this question. Hmm. 
I hate give it when that happens. I, give me a moment. I'm trying to. I'm trying to reel it back in. <laughs> I think that happens um, to all of us. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm just. Gonna, so you mentioned you're you're a certified aromatherapist, right? Right. Um, is that for animals or is that for humans? Uh, oddly enough, I was a clinical aromatherapist. I had that certification probably six years ago, and I just got it for animals specifically. So right. I knew a little bit about uh, animals and, and how to work with it with animals, but, you know, essential oils and animals are another very hot topic. So I wanted to make sure I was doing it right. So I went through a certification through a vet that actually had CE credits for vets. So the training I went through had several vets in the class and it was six weeks and we met once a week and then we had uh office hours where we had to go in and you know get help with questions and such and then we had homework assignments and reading every week and uh it just gave me a lot more confidence in what i was doing uh, because i do feel like again that's another holistic tool i can use uh, but i wanted to wield it properly so I'm going to throw it out there okay. because I use essential oils okay. in my rescue work, Okay. but I only use one brand yes. by Dr. Melissa Shelton from Animalio uh, Essential Oils. She is known as the oily vet because she was a vet who basically created her own line of essential oils that are safe to use, mm -hmm. diluted down, you know, for, for cats, dogs, snakes, fish, birds, whatever. And I have to say, before I before I tried her oils, I was on the fence because you hear a lot of controversy about right. oils and cats, especially cats. Oh my goodness, so much. So much you know controversy. You know. So it took me a long time to uh decide, you know, which brand I wanted to use or you know and how I was going to use it. And when I found Dr. Melissa Shelton at her website and she had a Facebook group, so I, I joined the group and I followed it. I, you know, like really like stalking it and, and learning as much as I can, like a sponge. Right. Then I, I, I took the plunge and I bought oils first for my dog to try because she, my dog had um, skin issues. Mm -hmm. So I tried that and it worked. And, you know, and now uh, I think is it four or five years in, you know, I wholly, highly recommend, you know, if you're, if, if you're not used to oils before, do go and check it out. It's like <clears throat> animal with an EO at the end, dot info. You know, just check her out, Dr. Melissa Shelton. Um, her oils are amazing. They're really good quality oils, you know, and they have truly, like, I have seen reversals um, in certain sick cases, you know, I will say it's a, it almost looks like a miracle, mm -hmm. but it's because of the therapeutic effect of, you know, the medicinal quality of the oils. Right. Um, so, you know, I'm a huge uh, believer in using essential oils as part of my toolbox, as you call it. Right. You know, can't live without it. So if you, you know, using that, check her out, um, you know, and yeah, she's just a, she's a lovely lady. She supports rescue work as well and, and, and stuff. So yeah. she actually supports uh, the rescue work that I do in Singapore. That's awesome. That's I know. Really cool. Yeah. So yeah, if, yeah. So, you know, um, 
Yeah, and highly recommend you just check it out if you haven't used it before. Right. And it's really important to get oils from a, a source that you can trust. Your stuff in the yeah. grocery store or even the natural food store is not going to be right for animals because so much of it is diluted with things. They call it adulterated with things that shouldn't be in there that can harm the animals. So I, that's a great reference. I actually have her book. Um, I trained under Janet Rourke. And uh, so that's who I trained over under, but yeah, get someone that knows what they're doing and get a high quality oil so that you, you get yeah. the therapeutic effects you're looking for and not, you know, something that you're not that could actually poison your pet. So um, the other thing I wanted to ask you, because you, you, you were trained as a pet nutrition coach. So you understand the, the politics of food labeling or oh, the mislabeling. Word. Yeah, you know, it's horrible. It's horrible. <laughs> Could you explain? Because you know, there are so many pet parents out there who don't understand that the commercial pet food industry mislabels stuff. You might think it says when it says like you know organic, but it might not necessarily be organic because of the way they put it in. Right. You know. So maybe because you're a certified pet nutrition, I think it would be <laughs> lovely if you could weigh in on this. Yes. So oddly enough, some of this stuff was not taught in my certified pet nutrition course. Some of this was life experience. So I already mentioned about the corn and how it's actually feed grade, but labels are very interesting. They are regulated. And so there, if there's certain things that you are allowed to change and not allowed to change. Um, but here's a few things that I've seen done in the pet industry. They'll take something like corn or wheat or something like that and divide it into three categories. So it's not the first ingredient on your pet food label. So that's one of the ways they're kind of deceptive about it. I also found out that pet food companies, at least here in the U.S., have six months to change the bag if they've reformulated the recipe. So for six months, you could be feeding one thing when it's really not that at all because they just haven't printed their new bag. And uh, another thing that I've seen a lot of is that they're allowed to put in substitutions up to a certain amount. I forget the exact percentage, but as long as it's within a certain amount, then they can substitute it and they don't have to tell you. Um, byproducts are always a big hot topic too. Um, a lot of people that are familiar with companies that do put byproducts in will argue that, hey, a lot of times it's like the heart and the liver and this good stuff, but there's a very dark side to byproducts too. I have a really good friend that was driving cross country and she was traveling behind this truck that smelled horrible. And it smelled so bad, even with the windows up and the, you know, like all the air vents off. So it wasn't bringing in air that uh, when they stopped to get gas and the truck stopped at the same place, they were like, hey, what is in the back of your truck? What is all this smelly stuff? And it was leftovers from a poultry farm going to a pet food processing plant. And <sighs> yeah, it was disgusting, uh, you know rotten you know having some mold and um some bugs in there with it and all kinds of gross stuff and so there's been cases with beaks and feathers and things like that that really don't add any nutritional value but 
um, they'll throw it in. So that's another one for me that's like, no, I, sorry, you, you can put in mill or a whole protein, but I will not do byproducts because of the leeway that they have with that. Um, a lot of times, you know, we have our big companies here in the US, I don't know if it's the same for you, but they'll come in with their very strong arguments and with the vets and the vets, because they get usually so little nutrition training that they'll parrot those back like, well, they've been around the longest, you know, they did these trials where they, they kept them in, they actually keep dogs in cages for several years and they're not allowed to get out to see the nutritional effects on them. And saying that a company has to go through that to see if, you know, the product will work well or how it works doesn't make too much sense because they've reformulated since then and they're not still doing those trials. It was more a way to see what needs to be done to give a, a pet proper nutrition. And once that guideline was kind of established, it doesn't need to be tested over and over and we don't need to put any more animals through that testing process. So those are a few of the things I've seen. It sounds like you have even more. I'd love to hear what you've heard or what you've learned. <laughs> well, we, Singapore is a very tiny little red dot on the map. We're just about one degree north of the equator. And we don't have natural resources. You know, it takes maybe about an hour or even less to drive from one end of the island to the other. And so we do a lot of imports, big, big imports for everything. And pet food, majority is big pet food companies that are coming in. So... You know, uh, what you mentioned, you know, like what they put into the ultra processed food is actually rendered dead, carcass, diseased right. meat, mm -hmm. you know, and for, you know, they could be styrofoam and rubber because they literally like picked it up from the roadkill, right. you know, um, and a lot of people in Singapore, I would say are not educated or aware of that because like you said, the vets are being marketed to. Right. By these pet food companies. I mean, it's like the pharmaceutical companies in that sense. You get the sales rep to come in, they send you the video and the and the spiel and the book of words, the very nice brochure. I said, this is it, you know, nice shiny pictures, you know. Um, and the vets, as you, you know, as you pointed out, and really I think it's 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 universal here as well, they were not really trained in nutrition. They were marketed to in school by pet food companies yes. to use those products. They were marketed to, they were not taught, they were marketed to. So when you start them, you know, it's like monkey see, monkey do. When you get the kids when they're young and you brainwash them in school, when they graduate, they will, they will parrot whatever, you know, you, you taught them in school. <laughs> right, right. And it, it's, it's a hard thing. And I, I'm not saying all vets like, or like that. I think a lot yeah. of vets really try it and hard you know, hard to do well, but they're also given the opportunity to market the foods they learned about in school and make a profit. So it, it's kind of a messed up dynamic, honestly. And I have a lot of people that will take my kittens home and will want to use the food that the vet recommended. And I'm like, do you realize the first ingredient in that is corn? This is not a good food, but the vet told them, you know, and again, that's another place where we see some animosity occasionally is between vet and breeders. You know, there's this mm. feeling like breeders know everything. They think they know what they're doing and, you know, that they're vets. 
And we don't, we obviously don't have that much training, but we do have a lot of training with our breed, you know, and a lot of that has actually been vet training over the years that we've cared for them. And so um, there's certain things that I will actually recommend an antibiotic for because I've seen, you know, they'll tell me the symptoms. I'll say, you know, that sounds like this. And our, my breed has always done really well with this antibiotic. You might want to try that. And some vets accept it and some vets get really mad about it. Um, so it is what it is. So besides, you know, you say you like to use um, holistic modalities in your, in your breeding protocols. So what else do you enjoy using? Yeah. So I really like uh, a lot of things actually. So there's the essential oils. I really like herbs a lot. Um, and I do use uh, the line of products that I work with. It's only US based, but um, they use a lot of herbs and holistic things in their remedies. So you're bringing in some lamp, uh, lavender, chamomile, um, all these kinds of things that are for calming if you need to, to calm a pet down internally. And I do like essential oils, but I think like we were talking about, you need several tools in your tool belt because not everyone wants to whip out essential oils and, and use that tool. Sometimes they just like a natural chew. Um, so I like using herbs quite a bit. Um, and those kind of holistic things, uh, probiotics. So the pre and probiotics I think are really important. Uh, and I use those a lot. I like salmon oil a lot. Um, I feel like maybe that's not considered an herb or anything like that, but I think it's really holistic for the overall care of the pet. Omega-3, it's very important. Yeah. I agree with you. Yes. Yes. If this, if you can't afford anything else, you should really think about omega-3. Yeah. And there's so much we can do for our pets. Um, some pets are prone to joint issues. I mean, most pets end up having joint issues in their later years. And there's some things that you can do, some different supplementation that you can do to help with that. And I'm not familiar with all the products out there, but the glucosamine is a great addition to help with that. So especially if you have a breed that you know is prone to that, starting young really helps keep those joints very healthy. And um, so, yeah, that's kind of where I want to go. I really actually would love to take all kinds of different courses and more holistic modalities. And I just got a book the other day that talks about some holistic modalities that I'm working on. Um, Jin Shin Jitsu. Jin Shin Jitsu for your animal companions. Oh, okay. Yeah. Never heard of that. So that? it's, I guess, um, some like energy points and energy okay. kind of has a bad connotation. It feels even more woo woo than, you know, essential oils, but we have different pressure points on our body and it's about um, putting some pressure on certain points. And I just got this book, so I haven't tried it yet, but I've had really good recommendations for it so um i that's kind of i love all things hey i'm 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 chinese so <laughs> tea, traditional chinese medicine acupuncture acupressure um yeah you know very familiar with that love that believe in it yeah you know um i would it, love the real deal. <laughs> yeah i would love to take some deep, deep level courses in that and the vet i trained under for my aromatherapy 
um, has. And so I'm hoping she comes out with some courses, but I think all of that's fascinating. And I think we rely too much on what we consider modern medicine. And we forget that it's only been around, you know, for the last few hundred years. And before that, mm. we had all kinds of remedies that somehow we've just forgotten about. You know, since we're talking about health and like, you know, especially with cats, um, you know, we, there's this thing that we always say with cats, eventually at some point they might succumb to say kidney failure. It seems to be like, you know, lifestyle, genetics, whatever. But most of the time, you know, the, uh, most cats, they do end up having some sort of kidney disease, you know, um, for the breed that you do, the Tonkinese, do you, have you seen that, you know? Um, well, I haven't seen it in my lines, but kidney disease is definitely very prevalent in the pet world. And like you mentioned, a lot of it is lifestyle driven. I think we've mm. chucked full our pet products with too many things that the kidneys just can't filter out. And so they give out. And then the hydration, the hydration is the other really important thing for cats that if they're not getting a enough hydration, then that kidney failure becomes uh, more likely. Um, but it, I, I mean, my cats, the first ones I bred, they've only been alive, like you said, seven years. So we haven't quite hit those super senior years, but I do like some of the holistic things that you can do for kidneys and kidney health. Um, and it kind of goes with the bladder too. So when you're looking at your, your cranberry and your marshmallow root and some of those things that just keep things healthier, I think all we can do is do as much prevention as we can. I like to say, you know, I do everything I can genetically to have the most healthy cat I can. And then I do as much as I can to find a safe home for them. And then other than luck, really all that we can do is focus on the nutrition. And, you know, once the environment and all that's taken care of, the biggest factor by far is nutrition and what we're allowing them to put in their bodies. And we're really their parents, they can't choose. So I'll find people that will say, well, my cat will only eat this brand of food that's, you know, junk food. And I'm like, well, you're the parent you know, there's, there's things we can do to help them. One of the things you can do if you're trying to switch foods and they're not eating it, but pets, just like people do like, or get used to carb filled foods. And so if you're switching to a, a better brand or to a raw diet, it can take some time. Um, I like to wet my kibble a lot and then I get it warm and getting anything warm brings out the smell of it. And that can really help a lot. And then of course, ch changing over slowly. So mixing um, and changing over like a week to two week period, depending on the pet and adding some incentives in there to eat, you know, like you said, freshen it up and have some toppers and such in there. Um, but that's really our responsibility as pet owners is to help them have better nutrition. So, you know, 2020 politically everywhere was kind of screwy. I mean, the U S had a brunt of it. I, oh my you word. Know, oh. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't do much on social media other than like getting on and working and um, mm. yeah, it, it was pretty bad here. Yeah. So, you know, uh, 
I'm glad that you know you you you're able to be where you are, based where you are in Utah and with your animals, and to spend time on self care. Are you feeling better now? With yeah, your adrenal. Oh yeah, I feel a hundred percent better, but it really took me probably mm, eight months to recover. So there was three horrible months where I had like seriously getting off the floor was hard and making one phone call like took all my energy for the day. Um, and so I needed a lot of help during that period and we didn't breed hardly at all during that period. And then, um, there was a period of time where I was, uh, doing better, but still tired. So, and doctors couldn't help me. I ended up going to a holistic doctor and doing herbs and, and things because, uh, nobody else could help me. So, so how many children do you have living with you? still we have six here so it's a pretty full house wow and how old are they the age range yeah so um my oldest is 22 down to 13 um so my 22 year old is at college but my 20 year old is here at the house and down and um we do have some pretty interesting mental health challenges that we're dealing with all the time um and so that's all in the mix. And I'm, I'm just so grateful that I can stay home and do what I do from home so that I can be here to help them through most of that. So, and they are all adopted fosters. So four are adopted and then three are biological. So I have biological, biological, adopted, 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 biological, adopted. So, wow. Yeah. You're an amazing lady to, to, <laughs> to ha- open up your home, you and your husband, to, to do that. Sometimes I think crazy, but um, <laughs> I, I really love it. I mean, that's part of that giving spirit that a lot of us have that we, we want to help and we want to support others. And then the truth is that it really ends up helping us grow. So it's all, you know, there's a, there's a big revolving energy there with you know you give and you receive really what you're doing is really beautiful um you know full respect because not many i mean like i come from asia and the asian culture and the mindset is very patriarchal you know and it's always about lineage and having the son as to carry on the family name Mm -hmm. um and adopting children, aside from, say, World War One and World War Two, when there was abject poverty at that time, where it was more common, where big families, if they can't take care of children, they will give away the kids, you know, um, because they just can't afford to have the children. Mm-hmm. Um, but in today's society, where we are a lot more affluent, you know, uh, modern day society, most people still prefer to give birth to their own kids. And I have to be really honest, I don't know anyone personally who has adopted a child. Everyone else I know has gotten married. Either they, 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 they choose not to have children or they, they want to have children, but their own children. So they do everything from natural to, you know... Uh, IVF or whatever it's called, you know, to, to have kids. And I remember one of my girlfriends was having problems giving birth, like, you know, um, getting pregnant. And I, I did ask her, I said, 
I'm curious, would you consider adopting if you really, really wanted children? You know, but and you can't naturally. And she said, no, I want my own. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, maybe because I'm not married, I don't have children myself. So I just think that it's a shame <laughs> to not adopt because there's so many, so many kids out there who need help, who need even a foster home, you know, before, you know, a halfway house, you know. Uh, so yeah, I mean, kids is not my kids are not my thing. Little, I call them little maggots. I call them little maggots. I'll be very honest here. <laughs> but, um, you know, I just, I just feel that, you know, to, to take on a life, to be responsible for another human being, whether or not it's your blood or not blood, it's, it's admirable. And that's why I, you know, huge respect for you because it's like, oh my God, seven kids how do you manage (laughs) it's a little nutty I'm not gonna lie um but like I said you know there's a lot of this giving and then you receive and there's so many different people in the world that that's the beauty of it is that we all have our talents and our desires and our passions and it all evens out you know we're able to create this world with a community that takes care of all the different things that need to come up and I think especially when we call on our better selves, you know, when we're, we're being the people that we can be, then that works even better. You really have a huge mothering heart <laughs> <laughs> for both animals, cats and dogs. Yep. <laughs> How many animals do you have at home right now? Um, I'm just curious. Yeah. So we've got, let's see, we keep only one boy. So we've got two boys for the two different breeds. And then we've got two dogs. Um, my son's emotional support animal is with us too. So we've actually got three dogs here right now. Um, and then we have four breeding girls that are here. So more than, you know, more than a normal household in the U.S., but uh, manageable. So. And are they in special categories? Because you don't want to have... Um unplanned pregnancies right right and not only that but the community of cats it really helps them the most if they're not if there isn't too many like it's harder to keep especially when you're looking at raising kittens if there's too many cats in the area then the issues with anything you know upper respiratory infections um, parasite spreading any of that goes up and so we try and keep them in communities of six or less um so we've got a couple dedicated areas that are pet only, which is kind of crazy. Um, wow. Yeah. And then we've got our main room where we have some cats that run around and we kind of shift them through. Like we have this whole system when they're born, they're more isolated. And then as the kittens get older, they come out into the main area so that they get that socialization with the noise and, you know, the doors opening and closing the vacuum. Um, kids playing, all that kind of stuff. And then they go home and they're just a lot better pets. Well, Heather Gibson, I've truly enjoyed this interview. Uh, and, you know, I apologize if I've taken up too much of your time. You know, we've gone over an hour, but, you know, um, I really, really enjoyed this interview. It was a really pleasant surprise. You know, uh, this blind date turned out really well, everybody. <laughs> Well, I'm glad. And if you ever want me back on your show, I'd love to come back. It's been fun. Oh, well, thank you so much. And blessings to you and your family. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Heather's Story. Look out for Daniel Rago's interview next week. Wow, I'm so thankful and grateful that you took the time to listen to this podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could subscribe, download, rate, review, and share this with others whom you care about that may enjoy it as well. Thank you, and remember to be kind to yourself and others. Have a awesome day, everyone.